Hello, we'll test the microphone here. All right, those of you that are staying for the breakout session, I totally encourage you to come on up close. I know you probably are comfortable, but we're so spread out now. Um, and so I want to be able to see your faces. And there's plenty of chairs. We can kind of create more of a closer environment. Be brave. That's what this uh, session's all about, right? Is that stress inoculation, allowing yourself to experience stress in a whole different way. So if you're staying, feel free to come closer. We'll have a more intimate experience together. All right. So in this session, we've designed it to give you an opportunity to triage for yourself. Like, where is stress tipping me over, and where am I already doing a really great job? And so we're going to go over six science-based factors of resilience, which can run both ways. It's such a dynamic thing. And you get the chance to kind of assess for yourself where you might want to lean in and dig some deeper roots so that you feel empowered to take bigger risks, to push yourself into what could be uncomfortable spaces that are fruitful opportunities. I want to start with a shared definition of resilience. So a lot of times when we talk about resilience, we think about bouncing back. It's probably the most popular notion of resilience. And personally, I take, I take an issue with bouncing back, because do we really bounce back to where we were after we experience adversity? In my experience, we go through the adversity, and on the other side, we are completely different humans. We are stronger, braver, more wise. So the goal isn't to bounce back in my experience. And my favorite definition is this uh, one by Stephen Covey that I'll try to put back up on the screen for you guys. There it is. Um, but he was summarizing Viktor Frankl, if you're familiar with Man's Search for Meaning, a beautiful little book that is perfectly timed right now to read over a Sunday afternoon. And so that definition is between stimulus and response. That, in there, that space, lies our power to choose. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So I often think about resilience as that gap, the freedom space between everything that's happening outside of me and my opportunity to choose how I respond to all of that. Now, on a bad day, a day where I get up late, I'm rushing, I don't eat breakfast, or I carb load because I'm stressed. That space is about here. <laughs> and we all know those days. It's the day that I flip someone off in traffic, which is not who I am, but somehow just emerges from that lack of gap. It's the day I lose it on my kids, the day everything just seems to go wrong. Those days are all about that freedom space being so tight that you're, you're not in freedom. Whereas when we build up these six science-based factors, we create this huge gap of space that allows us to be so responsive to the opportunities in our life, present in the moment, aware of the whole picture rather than that laser focus. So in psychology, we refer to this as the, it's called the Yerkes-Dodson curve, but it's that window of capacity. 
Some people call it the window of tolerance, but I kind of think the more resilient we be, be, that we become, the less tolerant we are of certain things. So I think of it as capacity. On one end of this bell curve, there's not enough going on. And some of us experienced that early on in the days of the pandemic. Staying home, not much to do. What did a lot of us do? We started a COVID project. Yes, we needed that. So on one end of the, the curve, we need to be doing something, otherwise, our productivity dies and our emotional wellness goes down the tank. On the other side of this bell curve is overwhelm, burnout, right? Things are just too much and so same thing happens. We shut down, productivity goes through the floor and our emotional wellness tanks. But right in that window of tolerance in the middle is our peak performance. It's our peak physical, emotional, spiritual well-being. Everything goes right when we're in that window of capacity. And by utilizing these six factors, we can grow that capacity intentionally so that more days than usual, we are experiencing peak performance in our lives, which really kind of makes all the difference. So as we're triaging, it's kind of noticing, is this... Is this a day where I'm in my window of capacity or is this a day where something has happened and I'm not feeling great? How can I triage that? What's going on? And we allow ourselves to be more intelligent about how we manage our energy and our performance in our lives by just kind of running through these. So I'm going to run through the opportunities to stay out of the toilet swirl of negativity that happens when we are trapped in that lack of responsiveness. We're reactive to everything. And hopefully we can avoid having these cascading vulnerability factors in our lives more often with this knowledge. All right, so I kind of think of it as looking through curious eyes. As you caught on in the talk earlier, curiosity is always our way in. That's the starting place. If there's only one thing you remember from this session, it's how can I get curious about what's happening right now? So when we do get curious, we become more mindful. Curiosity is a present moment experience. So as I trigger curiosity, I'm here, not in the future, not in the past, just researcher hat on, looking at things. And it allows me to triage from a different mindset. Instead of a victim mindset or a fixed mindset of all these things that are happening to me that I don't like, or all the people to blame for what's happening, I get into that mindset of, huh, how fascinating. Things aren't going well. And then I realize, huh, I'm tired. When I'm tired, I'm not the best parent, I'm not the best speaker, I'm not the best at anything when I'm tired. So maybe I'll take a quick power nap, maybe I'll cut this day short, delegate some things and get a good night's sleep tonight. And then I know it's not about me, it's about whether this system is functioning within that window of capacity. All right, so let's talk about these six factors. And then at the end, we'll have questions, just like we have with every other aspect of this event. You'll see a QR code. So if you have something on your mind, I would love to talk about individual situations or uh, the neuroscience of it or anything like that. So we start from the base. If you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which most of us have been introduced to at some point, 
you know, the foundation supports everything else. So when we're triaging, if I'm not meditating, that might not be the problem. The problem might be further down because it's pretty hard to meditate if you haven't slept. So on the base of our hierarchy of resilience is mind, body, soul, wellness. These are just those four cornerstones to check in on. Have I slept? Am I eating fuel that actually supports my body? Or am I feeling kind of it because I'm running a calorie deficit? You know, it's like our toddlers when they're in Walmart and they're on the floor kicking and screaming. We generally triage pretty quickly. We're like, oh, they're tired and they probably need a snack. So we can do that for ourselves too, but as adults, we've learned to push through some of these physical needs so many times that our body doesn't really give us the cues anymore, right? We miss that, oh, like, I am hungry. I don't do well when I'm hungry. Or I'm exceptionally tired from staying up until 2 a.m. working on this report. That's probably gonna tee me up to not do so well in the board meeting. So triaging these little pieces. And exercise is one of those ones that's so annoyingly important. When we don't move our bodies, everything else breaks down just as much as sleep or diet. And then finally, spirituality, which we kind of get hung up on. It doesn't mean religion. It means any space that you go into, whether it's a corner in your room, little meditation spot, or the spot at my kitchen table where I can see the birds eating out on the porch, or walking in the sunshine through the trees. Going skiing is one of my spiritual spaces. It's whatever space you walk into where you're just there. You're not over here, over there, you're just present, even just for a few breaths. We need that. And especially if you're struggling with mindfulness or being present in your life, Having a weekly spiritual ritual is really critical. All right, that brings us up to belonging. Now, there's been a lot of surprising research around how important it is for us to feel like we are part of a tribe. And if you've ever, which most of us have, if you've ever experienced a time in your life where you felt detached and disconnected, you didn't have your old friend group anymore, maybe you moved, left college, changed jobs, and you didn't have really a new group yet, maybe you became disconnected from family, it's disconcerting. And it drains on our bodies, and it stops us from taking risks because our backup, our people who will raise the barn if it burns down, those are our tribe. And it's also part of just feeling connected into something bigger than who you are. It's a big part of our, how we get meaning in life is this sense of belonging. Now, it, just a few years ago, for the first time in human history, more of us live in densely populated urban centers than we do in rural areas. Now, in rural areas, communities kind of baked right in, unless you're like an extreme lone wolf in your trailer in the desert. You move into a rural community and everybody knows everybody. And even if there's drama, those people show up for each other because there's just no other choice. It's like a baked-in agreement. We're in this together. As we moved humans into densely populated urban centers, we find that the uh, epidemic of loneliness 
is what emerged. People feel so depressed and disconnected and anxious in a high-rise apartment with 300 other people in the same building just because we're not connecting. There's no, nothing tethering you to that space. Your lease is up in six months. And what we found is that people became suicidal in that space just from a lack of belonging. So it's a really critical foundational piece to nurture your relationships, especially when they're good. There's no, you know, we often neglect relationships when things are gone great, we're busy, we're working on projects, and then a couple of years later, we realize we haven't hung out with our friends in a really long time. That bowling league, we don't even know what's going on anymore. And it's important to make sure we carve out time to nurture those relationships in meaningful ways. Uh, this all starts with ourself, of course, and then ripples out into the broader world. So how is my relationship with myself? And then what about these wholehearted allies, my immediate tribe of people, the ride-or-die, bail-me-out-of-jail people? How are those relationships? Do I need to nurture those? How am I engaging in my community? Am I giving back? Am I coming to a symposium to connect with people in my community? And finally, in the broader world, how am I connected? Do I have a passion for nature? Do I do trail cleanup because of that? Do I support my local neighbors? Maybe I visit the elderly or I volunteer at a, my kid's school. In these little ways, even just recycling, we've seen through research that our emotional well-being increases, our energy, our resilience, our ability to go out and do hard things increases because we feel connected. All right, moving up to meaning. So this is where my favorite work, my favorite resource is Viktor Frankl's phenomenal book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he, he was a psychiatrist that went through the Holocaust, survived, but pretty much lost everyone else he knew in the process. And he was already a psychiatrist when he was there, and so he was looking at this whole experience from that lens of like, why do some people die, and why do others survive? What is the difference? And from what he observed there, it fueled an entire career in investigating meaning, researching why this is such a critical piece of our humanity. And as I talked about in my uh, talk earlier, the difference between us and every other species on the planet is that we make meaning. We make meaning out of everything. I see 333 on the clock and I'm like, oh, it's a special time. Anyone else do that? Yes. And that's beautiful. It doesn't even matter if it isn't actually a special time because it's special to me. And when we create those little rituals and connections in our lives, everything feels just a bit more meaningful. We feel more connected to life, to purpose, to some sense of energy that is all around us. So when Frankel was studying the sources of meaning, uh, there are three that he came down to, that we could categorize as we triage our own lives. One is what we're contributing. So what am I offering the world? And this could be service, it could be how you contribute in your family, in your industry, how you show up for your colleagues, but it can also be creating something, like a new development project, or getting a mural done in the community, in the city, to 
bring awareness to diversity. It could be creating art in your own private home, writing poetry, and never showing anyone. It's not necessarily about the exhibition. It's about creation. The second of these sources of meaning is experience. It's about being deeply present in a moment. And you guys have all done this just naturally. We're wired for it. You walk outside and you see this huge sunset. And it doesn't matter where you're going, for that one moment you're like, whoa, that is so beautiful. How crazy that we get to see a sunset every single night and a sunrise every single morning. Just that, those moments of awe and wonder that draw us down into our very lives. And we can find and practice those moments more and more, looking for them intentionally, creating them, just looking around a room and deciding what sparks curiosity and awe for me in this moment. It's also about deeply experiencing other people. And we do that by listening. It's sitting down, looking another person in their eyes, whether it's a stranger, your best friend, your partner, your kid, especially your kid. Man, it's so hard to do that. You get so busy, you're making mac and cheese and your kid's sitting there talking at you. And there in that moment is that opportunity to get down on their level and look them in their eyes and then just listen. And the most magical thing happens when we turn all of that off and just listen for just a moment. We have one of those profound moments of awe and connection that creates so much meaning for everything else that we're doing. Why make the mac and cheese? Why clean the house? Why do the laundry? Why show up to work? The why is in these moments. And finally, we have attitude. And this is what Viktor Frankl saw in the Holocaust, in the concentration camps. It's the attitude we choose to take in the midst of uncontrollable adversity. And so it's on those days, sometimes it's as simple as like, oh, I've got a flat tire. I got three flat tires in my first year after my divorce. I'm pretty sure the universe was training me for this mindset of like, okay, first flat tire, there's a lot of cuss words, a lot of feeling powerless, a lot of not knowing what to do, who has AAA, and yet then that little inspiration of like, maybe I could change my own tire. And between three of us women at a coffee shop after our meeting, uh, we went out and changed that flat tire. It took us a while. <laughs> we had some missteps. You kind of need to loosen the lug nuts before you bring the car up. You know, lessons learned. But it was such a beautiful experience. In the pouring rain, mascara running down our faces, changing a tire. And a month and a half later, I got another flat tire. And at that time, I was with my kids on the way to carpool, peach, jiggings, slippers, and I was like, there was a couple cuss words, but within like a window of about 30 seconds, I turned to my teenage daughter and I said, time me. And we got to school on time with not nary a smudge on the peach jiggings. So it's in these little openings especially the little ones at first, where we practice this mindset of discomfort, adversity, I've got this, it's great, it's fine, and it changes the entire game, especially when unexpected, really hard adversity hits, because you've already really exercised that muscle of panning out and looking for the opportunity inherent in all of it. All right, this brings us up to mindfulness. Finding your ability to be still, 
Now, I want to be clear that mindfulness isn't about not thinking. <laughs> as much as some people might, might think it is, it's really just about being aware of what you're thinking, being the compassionate observer of your thoughts. And so, more importantly, when we're talking about resilience, because mindfulness research is extensive and we could talk about it for an entire symposium, but from where I stand, if resilience is the space between stimulus and response, that freedom space, mindfulness is the tool that chisels it out. And second, mindfulness, especially meditation, which is that concentrated dose, creates the opposite physiological state to toxic stress. So your entire body goes from a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state just through a few minutes of mindfulness, especially meditation. But let's be clear about what this is and what this isn't. So mindfulness is literally just paying attention on purpose, in the moment, without judgment. It's that moment where you get down and look your kid in the eyeballs. And that's all you're doing, is just listening to their story about their day. It's that moment when you get off the ski lift and you take a look around at the view and it's just astounding. It takes your breath away. You're just right there in that moment. And our goal is just to extend those moments, little by little, give them more space through rituals in our day. So one of my favorite mindfulness rituals, who else is a coffee addict? Morning coffee, we've got a few of you. Uh, so in the morning, I get my coffee. I am a zombie at this point because the coffee's not in me yet, and I'm not a morning person. And I sit down at that beautiful spot at my kitchen table where I can see out onto the patio, whether the sun is streaming in in the summer, or I can see the snow falling, the crystals sparkling in the morning daylight. And I just hold the coffee, feel the heat in my hands, the sensory experiences are super helpful for mindfulness, and give it at least a minute. <laughs> Some days it is literally just 60 seconds, but most of the time it's a solid five, 10 minutes of this is how we're starting this day. Just here in this moment, mind runs away onto the to-do list and just come back to the coffee coming back to the coffee over and over again, which eventually takes us into meditation, if we're in the right mind space for it, if it feels right. And the only difference here with meditation, we're choosing a focus, maybe the hot coffee, maybe your breath, maybe a candle flame, and then you're gonna give it your full attention, gently bringing your mind back whenever it wanders. And that is the bicep curl, if you will, of meditation. Your goal is to have just at least one in any meditation setting of like, I noticed I was thinking about the weather. I noticed I was thinking about what I should have said in that altercation with my partner yesterday. I noticed. And then I brought myself back to my breath, to the flame, to the coffee. It's just coming back over and over and over again. And over time, you start to experience a little gap, a little bit larger gap between your thoughts and create an astounding physiological impact on the entire body, especially the brain. Meditation is one of the only interventions that we've studied under fMRI scans that have shown, has shown to change the gray matter of the brain. 
So it's incredibly powerful, more so than most pharmaceuticals that we've studied for the same purposes. It's always available, it's right there, it's harder than it sounds, but it's totally worth it. All right, that brings us to mindset, which is one of my favorite components. Honestly, I feel like it gets more and more interesting the higher up we get the hierarchy. So in mindset, I like to utilize the hero's journey. Who is familiar with Joseph Campbell's work? Yes, on the hero's journey. This is such a wonderful, non-judgmental, easy, accessible way to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, where am I at in this particular hero's journey? Which, you know, for example, with changing my car tire, I, you know, the tire being flat is my call to adventure. A mentor showed up, one of my friends at the coffee meeting was like, hey, I have AAA as backup, and that gave me enough bravery to go try to do it myself. And then I moved into that road of trials, like, oh, um, I have to find the other tire. <laughs> Never done that before. I had to find the jack. I had to figure out how to use the jack. And jacks these days are like tiny doll jacks with strange parts. It's kind of confusing. I had to read the instructions in the pouring rain. We did it wrong a few times. I slipped a few times. Definitely gouged my shin on the jack. So there were some trials. And yet in that persistence, we eventually build up the confidence through those exercises to get to the death and rebirth, the hardest part of the challenge, the part that will change us forever. And it's all about not giving up. It's about persisting until we get there. And in that death and rebirth of finally changing the tire, chucking the old one in there, going to Le Schwab and having them charge me $800, I was transformed. <laughs> It was a painful day in a lot of ways, but honestly, in every way that I feel about it, it's just beautiful. It's one of the most empowering memories I have as I tried to come back from the abyss of my life. You know, we have those periods where everything kind of burns down and it's time to rebuild. And during those moments, it's, it's the opportunities all around us that bring in together the entire broader hero's journey of the path that we are walking. And so we can all find ourselves somewhere on this diagram right now in some context. Am I starting something new? Did I just get an interesting opportunity landing in my lap? Is that the call to adventure? Did I just get bad news? Is that my call to adventure? Or am I already in the thick of a new chapter? Am I in the road of trials? Am I at the abyss? You know, if I even just think about this speaking engagement, there was everything leading up, we are in the abyss right now, right? For me, after this talk is over, it's like, okay, what do I, what do I take from this? How was I transformed? And that's what comes every time after that death and rebirth is that transformation of who you are all the way back until you come to a status quo again, a new normal, and you get to give that strength back to your family, your friends, your own life, your own dreams. You get to take all of that with you. And then you start it all over again. And that's one of my favorite things to emphasize to my clients is that this is a circle. It keeps going until you die. <laughs> so there's always more adversity coming. 
Sometimes we get stuck in this mindset of like, why can't it just be peaceful for a minute? Like, why can't we just calm down and everything be okay for a little while? In reality, it's that like resistance to the challenge, to the surf, that keeps us flailing around rather than rolling with the fact that this is inevitable. It means I'm alive. It means I am growing. It means there is some work to do and there's going to be some benefit to be derived from that work. So a few cues. When you find yourself, when I find myself, stuck in a fixed kind of what we call a victim mindset, which happens to all of us. It's not a shameful thing to find yourself there. Oftentimes we kind of co-opt that term into calling someone a victim. It just means that they're really stuck there and they can't really see it yet. But our goal is to see it when we're there. And those are those days where I'm like, oh, everything sucks, everything's hard, and it's this person's fault, and I should just give up. Like, this is just crazy. What am I doing? And all of the voices in your head are the negative ones, the self-doubt, the second-guessing, the blaming. That's when you know <laughs> you're in it. And that is also your opportunity to shift the story. So how can I practice radical acceptance first? of what's going on. Again, you can use that tool of kind of panning out of your life and looking at it from above and seeing like, okay, there's me. It's a really hard day. I'm sorry, dear. And here's all this other stuff going on around me. I'm just going to accept it for what it is rather than fighting it, avoiding it, trying to control it, which is how we all have our different defaults. I'm a control freak. I try to control the crap out of things when things are going crappy. So then I ask, am I arguing with reality right now. And in what ways am I arguing with reality? Because we can keep asking to go back to how things were or keep demanding that things shouldn't be how they are, but all it does is extend the anger, extend the grief, extend the complication. So can I accept it for what it is? And then the beautiful follow-up question with full credits of Byron Katie's work, if this is a hard area for you or you're just fascinated, highly recommend her book, Loving What Is. Sounds just like the title. Who would I be without this story? And almost always the answer is, huh, I'd be at peace. If I wasn't so frustrated about my kids leaving dishes in the sink right now, if my story wasn't how ungrateful they are and how they're going to be just terrible adult human beings and I've failed them, if I was out of that story and I just was witnessing dishes and that was it, who would I be? I'd be a different human, right? My more authentic self, my at peace, like, hmm, how interesting. Obviously what I've asked them to do is not working. Well, let's troubleshoot that later, right? I get to be a better parent, a better person, a better friend to myself, a better friend to other people. I get to be more present in my life when I stop arguing with reality, see how to pull myself out of the victim story and put myself in the hero role again, and then embrace that call to adventure. Like, okay, here we go, call to adventure. My kids are so... That, you know, as they get older, they're okay with it, but there was a period of time where they were really sick of me yelling out, called to adventure. But it's just finding those cues that work for you to help you shift into that mindset, which is very correlated with our final, the sixth of the factors of resilience. It's my favorite one, and it's honestly where I started when I was at ground zero. 
and that is intentional discomfort, or what I call resiliency field trips. And these can, are generally intentional, but as we get practiced at it, we start to find unintentional, unexpected gifts of resiliency field trips as we move through our lives. But by practicing them in the field, on purpose, ahead of time, we are able to spot them that way and see the call to adventure, embrace a heroic mindset, and change the entire tone of our experience. So a resiliency field trip, the three components is that it's new, and that's because novel experiences engage our brain in a totally different way. So it can even just be a new trail if you always run a certain trail. It could be going boating if you've never been boating. It could be writing a poem if you've never written a poem. It's new, it's novel. Your brain is gonna light up across the board because it's experiencing something new and wants to remember what's happening. So something new that is slightly scary and that's an important one because we're trying to baby step out of our comfort zone so that we can expand that window of capacity so that we can be at peak performance more of the time. So something slightly scary, slightly uncomfortable, and then you're there on purpose, intentionally. You are present for the experience. And by being present in the experience, you're present in your body, you pull out of your head. Even if your fear gets going, by being there intentionally, you know, I can leave at any time. You know, I can stop this situation, I'm in control, I'm just practicing being better at fear. And that changes everything. So new, slightly scary, intentional, and then just hang on for the ride as long as you wish to. And in these experiences, the coolest thing in the world that I've discovered is that I can practice resilience by going skydiving, which is something I have not done yet, but many of my clients have, or learning, taking a flight lesson. Has anyone taken a flight lesson out of airport number two? It's a really cool experience. It costs like 80 bucks. It's the coolest thing you could ever do on a Saturday. So, but yeah, it's a little scary. You're in a tiny plane. It feels everything. You will question your judgment as you get up and going, but by the time you get back down, you have widened your window of capacity, not just for flying airplanes or being up high or doing something that's really scary. You've widened your window of capacity for everything in your life. And that's the part that hooked me. That's the part that sent me down this rabbit hole of understanding resilience and geeking out on how we can build it up and maintain it in different ways such that we can always be in that space. And we can translate all of our experiences into growing and becoming who we need to be to fulfill our purposes on this planet, whatever that might be, and to do so with a lot of joy and wonder and excitement. All right, so we've covered all six of these factors from our mind, body, soul, wellness, sleep, diet, exercise, spirituality, finding some rituals around those things, moving up to our relationships, how we connect to ourselves and the world, on up to meaning, which of course a lot of these bleed into each other. All of this supports our sense of meaning and why, why we get up, why we do the things, why we're here today in this moment. 
Moving on up into how we can be more present in the moment and train our brains to be more adaptive and resilient because of that. And then on up into finding that heroic growth mindset in the midst of the harder experiences in life. When we're in the midst of friction, can we go there and change the situation so that we're not a victim of everything happening to us? Instead, we turn it on its head and everything's happening for us. And finally, doing a lot of that, hopefully, with some fun resiliency field trips that get you outside your comfort zone. All right, so that leads us to questions, answers, and also just space to, to dialogue a little bit more about stories in this arena. We have about 10 minutes left. I know there's not a lot of you in here, but I'm curious, because there's not so many of us in here, if we could just go around really quickly and name one thing that's stressing you out right now. <laughs> yes, she's got it right on the tip of her tongue. And one thing that you would like to try off of this, because honestly, just take away one. Just one thing and then allow that to percolate into others. You can't do it all right away. So, why don't we start on the far right side of the room. Perfect. So, you can also send up questions using the QR code and I will go to those as well after we do this. So, if you wanted to stand up and kind of speak a little loudly since it's a big space. One thing that's stressing you and one thing you might want to try. And it doesn't have to be directly related to anything because it's all related. So. I love that. I'm just going to repeat it for everybody else. And I so relate to this. I have two kids myself and has been through it so much. So his son sometimes has bad grades. And it's that reactive period of like anger around like, I've told you what to do. <laughs> like check in with your teacher, redo this test, whatever it is, versus giving space to look at what this could be serving long term, like what you could both be learning from it. Beautiful. Thank you so much. OK, next. Say it one more time, your family not? Oh, yes. So family being unkind or not on time? Which one? They rhymed. Not kind to each other. That is so stressful. So what is one thing for yourself that might be helpful from today that you've thought about? Yes, I love that. So being mindful, being in the moment, rather than worrying so much. I love that. I'm going to come down so I can repeat you guys much easier. I forget that I can roam. Oh, awesome. Yep, yep. What? Yeah. I need stay to stay up. up there. And that's going to cause issues <laughs> with the mic. But... <laughs> thank you, voice of guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> All right, I'll stay in my accord. We have a microphone now, so let's come to this table. Whoever would like to go first. Questions? Um, my sweet mom is 91, oh. and I'm, I'm her caretaker, so it's stressful. 
<laughs> that is stressful. I, I don't look forward to those days myself because I don't know how well I'll handle it. I'm an impatient I'm, person. Yep, I'm learning. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> Was there one takeaway from day today that might be helpful for you? You know, it's, it's just the one day at a time thing. Just take yeah. what I can take a little at a time. Yeah, call so. to adventure every morning. Yep. Start over. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Trivial to hers, but I'm stressed about negotiating a contract with a new client this week. So, Ooh, new contract this uh -huh. week. That's a lot of stress. What might be helpful for you this week then, of all no, the things? I, I worry about what I can control. I meditate a lot, actually. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, interesting new session. Fabulous. Yeah. Meditation, I always titrate the dose when stressful weeks hit. I should probably just do it all the time at that dose, but it's like, okay, I really need it now. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. It's on. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much for doing this. And this is amazing. I'm just like over here. Yes. It's just been a nice reminder, like the things that like, oh, I thought I knew that, but like the being mindful and everything. I think traffic yeah. just stresses me out every day because I'm yeah. like, I think we all know the rules. And then I'm like, just, just do the rules and we'll be fine. <laughs> and then, so just, yeah. Oh, that, that too. But yeah. So, so just today, um, the reminders of like, oh, Man's Search for Meaning and The Hero's Journey. And, yeah. But what was the name of that book you were saying, Love is the Way? Is that what it... Loving What Is by oh, Byron Katie. Who? Byron Katie. Byron Katie. Okay, yeah. perfect. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. A traffic is one of my big ones while he walks the mic. Let's go back here. Um, and during my meditation training as a teacher, we had an exercise where we all were supposed to be very mindful and listen to nothing while we made it to our meditation classes because the first two weeks we were all late and stressed getting there. It was just in an area of town and area time of day that was high traffic. And so we did it. We we're like, okay, but, but won't that make us late if we're not like hurrying, if we're not changing lanes? And she's like, just test it out. Let's see what time you get here next week. So we all got in our cars, or at least I did. I touched the steering wheel, got mindful, and then drove to the meditation class without changing lanes once, without hurrying or like watching real, I was just, you know, not being my normal aggressive driver self. I got there five minutes early. I don't even know how it happens. It's like magic. It's like the energy parts for you when you are in Zen. Highly recommend giving it a shot. All right, who's next? Sometimes I set goals and then I stress out stress myself out about reaching the goals and then I fail to reach the goal because I'm so stressed out about it. So, so I think creating an adventure for myself to reach the goal might be helpful. I love that. Turning it into like, this is play, right? Instead of so much pressure on ourselves, I do the same thing. And on that bell curve, I set such ambitious goals. And I know most of the people in the room today are of that same nature that you can get overwhelmed pretty easily, even though the ambitious goal is what gets you riled up in the first place. So it is helpful. Just like if you notice hitting into the overwhelm, let's gamify this. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Who's next? We want to come up to this table right here. Awesome. We'll just got to move our way around the room where there's only a few of us left. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, being stuck in between a teenage daughter and a mother who are very much alike. <laughs> I don't envy you at all. <laughs> I think I need to go on a field trip. I love that. That would be my suggestion to you. Go off on a solo resiliency field trip. Take some time, some space. Thank you. And next? The things I can't control 
Mm. There are a number of them, aren't there? Yes, there are. Though, we try. Is there any one thing from today that you want to try? Well, I've been telling myself to don't sweat the small stuff and control what you control and let everything else go. Yeah, picking your battles. I love that. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right, we'll move on over to the back table over here, I think. It's hard for me to see you guys with all these bright, sunshiny lights. And so brave, guys. Just kudos on being willing to participate in this way. It means a lot. All right. Hey, Em. Oh, wow, that's loud. <laughs> uh, we're current stressors. Uh, just kids plus new career plus, you know, whether or not the world's going to shut down again plus expectations, all of it. Well, that's a lot. You name it, probably all relate. Was there one thing from today that might be helpful? Um, yeah, maybe just like taking a step back and taking a deep breath. Yeah, yeah. I love pausing, that. Pausing before reacting. Big deep breaths. Awesome. Thank you so much. Let's pass on to the next. I don't know. Dana, Dana. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, just one current stressor, and then if there was a takeaway, something you want to try to offset it. Oh, goodness. Okay, so current stressor, probably what everybody else's same stressor is here is that's just the economy. Yeah. Um, and looking for opportunities. I'm more of a positive person. Um, what I will tell you about this morning's um, session that you had that I found really helpful is remembering to close your eyes, actualize what you're feeling, and then take a step back, breathe, and refocus, and let it go. Yeah. It's amazing how hard that is, right? We forget that. We go right into doing mode when really most of the time what we need is just a pause. Like most of the time the answer to the problem right in front of us is wait. Just wait. Take a breath. Take a beat. All right. Have we gotten through everyone that is present and wants to contribute? Anyone else? All right, you guys are amazing. I appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to just be part of this experience today. I'm gonna just double check if there's any questions on here. All right, so we have, uh, for those of us who are not expert meditators or frustrated with it, what other tools or activities have you found effective in shifting out of that fight, flight, freeze, or fawn state? So I'll give you a couple of examples. As a therapist, I work with a lot of clients who are stuck in that state, especially after the pandemic. We did the whole social isolation thing, and we kind of got stuck there in, in for a lot of us. And so one thing that is really helpful is exercise. Every time you go out and exercise, you're pushing into intentional discomfort. <laughs> it usually doesn't feel very good unless you're at like restore yoga, in which case it feels good the whole time. But go out and do some kind of hard exercise that gets a sweat going is a great way to shift our nervous system out of that state. It's why a lot of people will go for a run when they're stressed or in the middle of conflict. I'm just like, I'm going to go run it out. For me, I hate running. I hike it out. Honor your own individual path. <laughs> you don't need to do what everyone else is doing. And also, if you find yourself like really stuck in a panicked state, really cool uh, scientific research, we have a mammalian reflex built into our faces uh, where if cold water is introduced, 
it calms the body because we don't want to flail around if we fall into a cold body of water. It's how we die. So if you're really kind of stuck and want to get out of that mode quickly and pretty sustainably, take an ice bath. There's lots of ice bath places around, like retreat centers where you can go do it with other people, with flowers. But you can also do the same thing at home by just filling up your bathroom sink with cold water, add a few ice cubes, and then just dunk your face in. I know it sounds weird. You can also just put a hand in. We've seen research show that even just holding an ice cube can have the same effect. So you can kind of titrate the dose based on what you need, but it's a great way to trick the body to say, hey, I'm not supposed to be panicking right now. I'm okay, right? And you gotta use tricks sometimes because you just got triggered by something. Someone cut you off in traffic, grab an ice cube out of the break room and just hold it for a minute. Let yourself come back rather than carrying that energy into the rest of the day. So those are a couple of tips there. Another one, what tools do you feel are best for those of us who have time management anxiety or stress when working with others who don't respect those boundaries? That's a hard one. So for myself, I'll just speak personally, I can be on both sides of that coin depending on who it is. With work, I'm always on time. With my family, I am always late. <laughs> and there's, there's some therapy work beneath all of that, but I can empathize with both sides. And one thing that I always come back to is Byron Katie's work of loving what is. And when I'm irritated or struggling with somebody who is chronically late, that's where I start. Can I just radically accept that this is what's happening? Can I get creative? Can I pan out and with curiosity be like, ah, how fascinating. Bill is always late. What could I do to adapt to that situation rather than feeling frustrated, angry, and resentful every single time I have to meet with Bill. And so you, you give yourself opportunities that way over things that you actually have control over. Now, obviously, you can set some boundaries with Bill and uh, honor those boundaries, but you don't have any control over other people and whether they, they do honor those boundaries. It all kind of comes back to, how do I want to feel and operate in these circumstances? And that is found in taking that pause, that breath, finding a little bit of curiosity to say, huh, here's what's happening factually, and here's the story that is causing me so much misery. How can I pull myself out of that story? What could I learn from this experience? And how could it support my resilience, my dreams, my purpose? And I'll leave it there with you guys. So thank you so much. You've been a wonderful audience. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Mm.